0: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of The Decision Hour. I am your host, Adam Bird. Listen, get a pen and a piece of paper ready. You're going to want to take notes on this episode today. I got a uh, financial specialist. He's a private money lender, real estate investor, uh, member of the Bank on Yourself organization, and he is a fellow podcast host of a show called Thinking Like a Bank. I'm going to try not to butcher his name, but you guys know me. All right. So without further ado, I'm going to bring on my friend, Siri Ibrahim. Did I say that right?
1: Hey, Adam. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely.
0: It. And listen, man, I know you're a busy guy and I, I really appreciate you taking time to to, to educate us today uh, on some of the things that you do. But before we get into that, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah. Thank you for that. So I'm from, as we talked about before recording, I'm from Chicago, Illinois, Illinois. I have a company called Financial Asset Protection. So we do a lot of financial services for small business owners, real estate investors, full-time employees, a lot of like financial coaching, budgeting, counseling, whatever you need help with financially, we have a, some sort of solution for that. And I guess our primary niche focus that we have is using the bank on yourself concept. I could definitely talk about more with um, more on that later, but that's kind of our, our, our main focus. And really uh, my goal was just to be able to be a financial resource for people. I've been uh, in the financial services space for about eight years now, and I really enjoy it. It's definitely something that I... I, It's exactly what I've been wanting to do my whole life is how people solve financial problems, whether it's getting out of debt, whether it's finding money to invest, whether it's transitioning from their full-time job to starting their own business, kind of any financial problems. And I've started to build a network too, because I think you can't be an expert at everything, right? Right but I've built a network with accountants, lawyers, you know, and again, I'm not a legal professional or tax professional, so I can't give legal and tax advice, but I built a network of other professionals and we've kind of helped clients integrate their solutions. So that way clients can get the legal tax investment advice, all those things within within our network.
0: I absolutely love that. I think networking is absolutely key, especially in today's world. Mm -hmm. And I really want to dig into this money, uh, this money stuff, being a financial specialist, uh, it, because you look at finances ho- I was horrible at it horrible at, at managing money I made a lot of mistakes in in my early 20s as as I would assume a lot of yeah people do uh but now in my <clears throat> mid 40s uh I look at life a little bit differently I handle the uh, finances a little bit differently right um what's what's one thing now that's kind of universal in the financial world that people should be looking at uh with their finances
1: yeah definitely so something universal i think people should be looking at is um keeping track of their their financial financial situation like how much debt they have how much income they actually make how much they actually spend what assets they have like their checking savings 401k i think the like i i one of the first steps of working with clients is we go through a financial analysis meeting. And in that financial analysis meeting, we're going through their financial situation, like their assets, their debts. And I would say about 80 to 90% of the time, people have never done that before, like gone through all their assets, their debt, things like that. But really, keeping track of it. So a lot of people out there don't know exactly how much they make, how much they spend, how much credit card debt they have, how much they have in their 401k all in a like if they wanted to it would probably take some take some some time to put together all of the the websites the portals the statements all that together but a lot of people don't know and they're going around with mental accounting mental accounting is where you're just oh you know, I make five thousand a month you know a couple of thousand goes away for taxes I have my rent is you know 1500 yeah. and then whatever's left from there so it's just kind of based off your memory and right you know being humans our memory is not that good it's not as good as we think it Horrible. is so, <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's that's the reason why you look at credit cards like oh wow you know i my credit card limit is 5000 and it's i'm already at 4500 and my checking account is actually much less and right. my savings i took out you know you know that's this is a story for a lot of people something like 70 something like uh 70 to 75% of americans um don't have a $1000 in a checking account and can't go uh, like one pay period without having to take out more debt. Uh, like if they miss one paycheck, they'll have to tap into credit cards, borrow money. So it's a big deal. And it's not really an income problem. We live in the richest country in the world, obviously. A lot of people make a lot of money in the United States. It's just a massive spending problem.
0: Let me ask you this. How much How much should people be saving a month or if he let's use me as an example i come yeah. to you and i say listen i want to start saving for retirement mm-hmm. should have thought about that now i've i've encouraged uh you know i have a 20 year old my, my son's in mm-hmm. college and i told him you know there's certain rules that you need to f- abide by going yeah. through school when you start getting paid you need to take you need to cut it in half and then yeah. take that half and, and cut that in half and you're only getting a quarter and 3 quarters of it you know half of it's going to go to taxes the other half is going to go to to uh you know a, a retirement or a life insurance policy or, or 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 something that you can invest in is that still the case is that good advice that people should be hearing now and what kind of advice or what would you say for somebody that's starting off what should they be looking at in regards to saving whether it's a savings account or some type of ira or 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 what
1: yeah adam that's a really good question and you're absolutely right like you you want to create like forest habits where it's almost out of your control i i work with a lot of a lot of clients who are like real estate investors who have a lot of properties I, they have a lot of good habits yeah. it's not so much that they were just like lucky with a lot of money they the, the things they do is really strategic and i've noticed that they always are taking away their human control, their their human nature out of financial planning because they don't go hand in hand, right? Like human nature is impulsive. We want to keep buying stuff. We want to keep spending. And as our income grows, surprisingly, our our, our expenses also increase. So you want to create some sort of ways of taking away the control you have out of your own money. And such as having forced savings habits, like like you said, if your paycheck, if you, when you get your paycheck, take half of that and then a half of that, so twenty five percent, and automatically it gets deployed. It goes into a savings account. It goes into some sort of investment. It goes somewhere that you don't have readily uh, available access to it. Because if you consistently have access to your money, all your money, you're going to spend it. Especially if it's tied to a checking account that's also tied to a debit card, right. um, you're going to consistently spend. You know, credit cards and you know, plastic cards, debit cards, credit cards are the best invention for banks and financial institutions because it makes it and for companies as well because it makes it much easier for people to spend money there's no you have the same plastic card right that you can keep reusing whereas before when you carry cash there was more of an element of like um uh, being attached to it like you spent less of it because you had physical things that you were attached to so um, you want to kind of break some of these cycles that we've fallen into over the years of like, you know, credit cards now and debit cards, it's completely normal to to not have cash on you anymore. I barely carry cash on me because I don't like to, I just like to have a debit card, credit card, but also you end up statistically speaking, you end up spending a lot more money when you, when you have that. So if you, if you're constantly taking your income and deploying that right away, like you know, even if it's like two hundred dollars goes into an E trade account or two hundred dollars goes into some sort of cash account or somewhere else other than your checking account, I think that's a huge, huge uh, point. Because too, when you look at people who have a hard time spend, uh, have a hard time saving their money, yeah. you also notice that they're really good at paying their bills. Like they, they, they're always on time for not always on time, but they're really good at paying other people. And I think in general people are really good at paying other people but they're horrible at paying themselves so you kind of want to reverse that cycle and pay yourself pay yourself first save first and then pay off pay pay your, your bills and your debts
0: after you know i i've heard that so many times in in my lifetime and i've been horrible uh, at it as a business owner myself, every, you know, I've, I, my thought process always goes to, all right, we made some money, roll it back into the business. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody says, Hey, make sure you're paying yourself. Well, okay. I'll, I'll do that later when the business gets, you know, to a certain success or whatnot, but you, you brought up something. I want to, I want to, I kind of want to roll back on something here real yeah. quick, because you mentioned credit, credit cards and debit cards. Um, and for those, out there, you know, I've heard, I've heard some people like, oh, I just lost his name. I can see his face, Abignail. he was. They made a movie mm-hmm. yeah. out of him, but it was like, you know, he said, "You never use a debit card. I always use yeah. stuff on credit." Like, and you know, when I was in my early twenties, like having a credit card was was bad. Like you, you'd never wanted to have a credit card because it just did X, Y, and Z, and that was just yeah. kind of like how it was. And now it seems like the tables have shifted. So can you explain the difference between a, a credit card versus a debit card? And and do you need both or is, is one better than the other?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a debit card is just like a it's like writing a check, right? Like you have your checking account. When you use your debit card, it takes out of your checking account. It's the same thing as almost writing a virtual check, like instantly. Okay. That's what a debit card is. And then uh, a credit card is like taking out a loan. So like you buy something, you're taking out like a micro loan from a bank and you're consistently taking out loans when you're using your credit card. Um, and I, I know who, uh, Abagnale, uh catch me if you can. The yeah, movie. yeah, yeah, thank um, you. Uh, so he, t- I, I, I did see that video where he says he never uses a debit card. He always uses a credit card because he gets points back. He has fraud protection. And his money is always like growing in different places, is not tapping into it. I get that. I get that idea very well where it's like you're consistently borrowing money and then having your assets growing in different places. It, it takes away the risk from you. But at the same time, it goes into one huge risk of credit cards, and that's interest rates. Mm. So interest obviously is when you have to pay more money for borrowing something. And the the hopes for the credit card company is to get you to consistently use the credit card. Because then you start building up habits over time. You start putting everything on your credit card, and then again, surprise, your credit cards now exceed your checking account balance. They exceed other things, and then you go, "Well, I'll just finance it. That's fine." The thing is, too, with credit cards is that they typically have the highest interest rates. Number one, and number two, the way that it's calculated is typically the worst way to come. It's 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 calculated interest on interest, monthly compounding interest. So, whereas like your mortgage, other you know other um, loans. Are term loaned mm-hmm. so that way every month is your a portion is going to interest and a portion is going to principal. It doesn't roll and compound and get greater and greater over time. It's fixed. Credit cards, on the other hand, do roll over month to month. So it's very simple for a very, it's very likely that when you do rack up a lot of credit card debt, and let's just say your minimum payment, like you racked up like $5,000 in credit card debt, your minimum payment now, let's just say it's $500. It's very mm-hmm. common where you pay $500 and next month, your balance is, you know, forty seven hundred. You're like, wait a minute, I just paid five hundred dollars right. last month, and then, and then the same thing happens. You pay five hundred dollars, the next month, right? So then right. you see this effect where it's like never ending. And this is the, this is what credit, unfortunately, this is what credit card companies want. Yeah. This is like the jackpot for them when you're not able to pay it off because it's just like passive income for them rolling in every month. So, if I like, let's just say you were in that situation, now what do you do? Well, step number one is you completely stop using the card, like you. Get, stop using that card completely. I wouldn't close it because when you close an account, that's bad for your credit. So right. just stop right. using it. And then after that, you're going to have to come up with a way of paying off like maybe two or three times the minimum payment. So if it's $500 a month, you need to pay 1000 thousand fifteen hundred $1,500 a month to actually see some substantial, um, to, to lower it more. So- to answer your question, that's kind of the differences between debit cards and credit cards.
0: Isn't it tr- like, yeah? and I'm glad you bring that up, especially with the credit cards and the interest rate, because yeah. I, I've seen like, if you're, you, you, you use the example, $5,000, like if you're just paying the minimum on that, yeah. it takes forever to pay that 5,000 and you're not paying at the, by the time you pay it off, it wasn't, you paid three, four or five times more yeah, for sure. than, than the $5,000 when you could have just uh, right there at the yeah. beginning, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want to, I want to kind of change gears a little bit. Yeah. I want to talk about real estate and real estate investing. Yeah. Like how hard is it for somebody to get into real estate or somebody that's interested in, in like, Oh, I've always, I've always wanted to get into real estate investing. Not really sure how or, or, or what to do or what would be a good thing to do. Can you kind of walk us through that process?
1: Yep, absolutely. So, I would my, the first step with real estate. I would differentiate the difference between um, general partner and a, a, a sorry, an active investor and a, a limited partner or passive investor. So, if you go out right now, Adam, and you buy a property yourself, you're personally signing on the property. You're you're dealing with tenants. You're going to rent it out. You're dealing with tenants. You're dealing with contractors. That's an active real estate investment. You're actively engaged in the property and the in the investment itself. You're responsible for the property, the loan wise. You know. That's an active investment. And I think that's what most people think about when they think of getting into real estate. They think of getting into active real estate. And that's fine. I know a lot of people who've made a lot of money doing that route. There's also something I think that's becoming definitely more popular nowadays, and that's uh, passive investing into real estate. This is where you're a limited partner in a real estate deal. You're passively investing. This is where you invest in somebody else's deal. Like You're essentially almost like the bank in that situation or the investment company in that situation. You're investing yeah. into a deal the same way how when you buy stocks of a company, that's a, that's a passive investment you've made in that company. You're not sitting on the board of directors You know, actively engaged in the company. You are a passive investor in that company. And the same is true in, in, in being a passive investor in real estate. You're buying shares of a fund or shares of a property or some, in some situations, interest, depending on what the, the position is. But I I'm, I'm A lot of the podcasts I'm doing and our podcast, I'm encouraging people to check out being a passive investor in deals because number one, uh, you don't have to do any work at all. You're just investing in the deal. Other people do the work. Number two, your investment is only capped at, your your risk is only capped at your investment. So that means if you invest like $20,000, the maximum amount of money you can lose is $20,000 whereas if you're an active real estate investor and you invest like $20,000 into a property right. the amount of money you can lose is technically unlimited because you're personally signing on that home there's people could sue you contractors you know things like the the, the, the amount of money is unlimited as far as how much you can lose when you're personally signing on and anything whereas when you're a passive investor it's limited to the to your investment um i I would say something on yeah. that
0: real quick i, I like it, you use passive investor because it's like and there there are apps that are out there that that have like uh where you can be like i think uh
1: fundrise is one of them
0: that i was just so i was just looking (laughs) just 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 looking (laughs) at the literally that's why i kept looking down is because i was was looking for i knew there there was an (laughs) app for it and i i I had been playing around with that for like the last year and it's it's kind of cool because it's like yeah. you, you said you don't have to worry about anything you just throw and it's like you know whether you throw ten dollars in or you throw ten thousand dollars in you're you're part of this that's that's going and it shows you a little graph you get a monthly yeah. statement for for everything like that and it and it's kind of honestly it's kind of cool and it's really less of a headache. Like you don't have to deal, like you said before, with the other type of investing where it's like, okay, I'm going to sign the contract. I'm going to do this. I'm going to deal with the contractors. I'm, yeah, yeah. You know, so I I think that's that's pretty cool. Uh, with that, with with the housing and the real estate investing and stuff like that, how are interest rates right now with people investing? Is it are they is it a buyer's market right now?
1: Yeah, good question. So in real estate, as being like in residential, like for example, like buying a house to live in. Unfortunately, it's probably the worst time right now to buy really? a house because interest rates are high. That's one factor. Yeah. But then yeah. the other factor is limited inventory, and then people are still buying right now. Like surprisingly, people are still out there. You know, I I have um some family members who are, who are trying to buy a house now, and they say still they they go to a house to look at, and there's five or six other people. They're still getting outbid. This is in the Chicagoland area, which yeah. I'm sure is the same in other areas. So you still have the competition you had two years ago for buying houses, but now with much higher pricing and much less inventory. Is because that in 2020, so- Sorry.
0: No, I, I, forgive me for interrupting. But yeah, I, no is that something that that they should be worried about, or that we should be worried about as a society as a whole? Are we? Because I remember what was it? The 2005 collapse. Yeah. Uh, And whatnot, where you had people just walking away from their mortgages and they were letting it go into foreclosure. And then they were turning around and buying a new house on a different, you know, that was a quarter of the price in the house that they just let go into foreclosure. So are we going are we going to see something like that happen again uh, in the housing market here over the course, say, the next five to 10 years? Yeah,
1: good question. So I guess number one, nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. Right. Uh, but I, I think that a certain. So I think that if you look back in like two thousand five, two thousand six, back then before uh, that's uh, before two thousand eight. If you go back and look, before two thousand eight, when you wanted to buy a house, your mortgage. I know you were in the mortgage industry. Uh, I don't know if you were during that time in the mortgage yeah. industry, but yeah. I, I I was told, I was still um, I, w- I was still like probably 16, 17 at that time. So I, I'd never bought a house. I didn't need to at that time. Um, <laughs> but I heard from people that you, your mortgage broker or your loan officer would ask you, how much money do you make? And you'd say, oh, I'll make $250,000 a year. Yeah. And they say, okay, and they would submit that to the underwriter right. and then they'd come back. <laughs> right, yeah. So, so that's completely not different, saying now, I right? did that. I'm just saying yeah.
0: I know a lot of people that have done that. It's like in the, they wouldn't get yeah. any pay stubs or proof that It was like everything was like it was like a handshake. It yeah, was yeah. just like oh yeah, okay, we'll take his word for it. That's what he said.
1: Exactly, and then um, and then the problem with that was it was insufficient. It was uh, it was not a, it was not a, a stable way of running an economy, right? Because a lot of people defaulted on those loans. A lot of those loans were. Uh, adjustable rates. So they changed the rates. The rates went up as interest rates went up. And then it was almost like a domino effect. Now today, post 2008, there's a lot of laws, right? Where you have to have tax returns, you know, pay stubs. The bank has to verify where the down payment came from. You have to prove it, all these different things. So that's made it more stable. So that means all the people getting mortgages now have had, on the residential side, have had to go through hoops, uh, and the lender made them go through those right. hoops because th- these are federal regulations. Now, in order to be a, a mortgage lender, you have to go through these things. You can't just, you know, say well, we don't want to go. We want to write these loans. So, so that so now that's created a lot of more stability. So that means people buying houses right now are legitimate buyers with legitimate income. But then it goes into the the, the next argument. Well, if my W two income has been stable for the last five years. Who's to say it's going to be stable for the next five years? And nobody knows that. Not even you know that, right? Right. So that could create some problems if the unemployment rate increases, because then people less, you know, um, people are going to be laid off. They're going to lose their jobs, which is going to be a loss of income, which is going to potentially lead to foreclosures. So that could potentially happen. But I think the fact that the laws and regulations were are in place now post 2008 create a lot more stability in in the housing market. Now I think that it's going to be probably other crashes in other areas, like car notes I know are unbelievable right now as far as the amount of debt in cars, the amount of debt in student loans, the amount of debt in credit cards. I think that those types of debts are going to have probably more of an impact on the economy and people. Um, and I know that the stock market right now is probably one of the worst places to put your money just because of the volatility um, post you know, 2020, after 2020. Uh, so I think that, but then here's the, the, the twist to it though. And that is, in multifamily housing right now, like from an investment standpoint, investing in multifamily housing, it's definitely up and it's it's continued to increase because as the demand for home buying is going up and as interest rates are going up, more and more people are renting because they have to live somewhere. Right. So that's increasing the rent costs and that's providing higher rates of return for the investors. And now you can be a passive investor in those. You can passively invest into multifamily deals with as little as five thousand dollars, you can invest, and then now you're a part owner of of a market that's on the high. It's going up. The market is going up for multifamily housing. So, just some things to think about. Uh, but you can still make money in this horrible real estate market.
0: Well, I was gonna I was gonna ask. Like you, you mentioned something about the stock market and how it, it it's just a it, it's such a crapshoot. Yeah. Uh, you know when when you put your money into that, and they always say they've always said, you know, back in, back in my day, it was, you know, put your money in real estate or buy land or, or, or put your money in real estate is, is that what you're, you're still seeing? Is that still like the best thing to do is I don't want to say, I don't want to say what's the, the safest yeah. investment. Like you, you know, you, you invest in like gold, precious metals, real estate, or, put your money in the stock market, out of those, where where would your money best be suited?
1: Yeah, good question. So I think that, that so th- that question would result in like what where do I put my money? Like what do I buy or what asset do I buy or where do I where does it go? But I think before that, there's another step before then that okay. is like the financial planning step. Like going through a situation where you're identifying your current financial situation, like what's what's currently happening right now in your life and then what are your goals like short term and long term goals and then identifying the investment you want so i think a lot of people would just jump right into the investment like you know real estate is good or real estate is bad stock market is good stock market is bad and then you want to just go right into that but i think before that you need to definitely um identify where you're at financially and then where you want to go so if your goal is long term growth you know the next 10 years you you, ha- you have a good job now your business is doing really good you have good income and you're just looking for some place to park money, not really touch it for the next 10 or 15 years, I think real estate would be really good for that because it is a long-term investment, especially the deals that I'm talking about, like passive deals, they're typically long, they're typically greater than five-year holding period. So, but if your goal is to like um, increase your, um, I guess, dividend rate as far as short-term cash flow, real estate from a passive investment, there's probably other places that could do better for that. So I guess identify like your, and then another thing too is differentiate your income situation from your investment situation. So like your income is like how much you're making short term, like every month or every two weeks, how much you're making. And then your investment situation could be short term or long term, but they're different as well. Like, are you trying to live off of your investments or are you trying to transition to doing so? Really identifying your goals and working with a professional. I would typically want to work with like a financial advisor and somebody who is completely independent. So not like, an employee of a mutual fund or somebody like that, because they're 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 most likely going to recommend a mutual fund or right. an index fund. But really, working with somebody who is can be like your financial coach. I really love financial coaching because it's super open ended, and can result in in really anything. It could be the stock, it could be stocks, it could be real estate, it could be precious metals, it could be reinvesting back into your business. So. To answer your question, Adam. I would go, I would, I would zoom in on your goals and your f- current financial situation and understand that, like, just because your neighbor bought you know Bitcoin two years ago or three years ago and then sold it a year later and made you know a million dollars doesn't necessarily mean that that's that was a good financial strategy. I think that was more of just really good luck yeah. to be transparent. Yeah. No, because nobody knows exactly what's gonna happen, especially with a, a volatile asset like cryptocurrency. So really kind of taking away, taking a step back from all of the hype in, in, in people's lives and, and in social media, things like that, and focusing on what you want what you want your money to do.
0: Listen, people for the people that are listening right now and they're loving what they're hearing and they want to reach out to you or they got some other questions that they want to ask you, how can people get in touch with you?
1: Yeah. Easiest way is they can go to our website, thinkinglikeabank.com. It's thinkinglikeabank.com. They can go there, they can connect with me on LinkedIn, YouTube, they can email me, call me, schedule an appointment, uh, check out our other resources, all from thinkinglikeabank.com.
0: Perfect. So folks, you're already online if you're listening to this show right now. Open up another browser and go to yeah. thinkinglikeabank.com and check it out. I got you know, I got another question here. Uh life insurance and stuff yeah. like that. What are your what's your take uh, on that and there's there's uh, not a mutual fund what was it Um, I'll think of it but yeah uh, I, I had my son doing like a life insurance because it was like it it was it was bringing in a percentage every year mm-hmm. uh, and then if the if the market if the rate dropped it would never his would never drop it it would only either yeah, stay yeah. where it's at or it, it would go up and that seemed like a a smart thing to do but what what's your take on on people that have like a well like i've always i've always said when i hear life insurance like oh am i dying you know what what's what's happening or but a lot of other people say no i go in and have a life insurance policy and and then you know you you can cash, you know try to get your own cash and i don't want to say become your own bank but that's kind of the mindset like you know seven eight ten years down the road if you want to borrow money from yourself you you can, right? Is that how it works, or am I am I thinking of something else?
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. This is, and this is one of our like our specialties is exactly this thing that you're talking about. So to to back up a little bit, there's two kinds of life insurance. There's term life insurance, which is just life insurance only for a set period of time, mm-hmm. and then there's cash value life insurance, which is cash inside of a policy and life insurance. Okay. And then within cash value life insurance, there's, there's multiple forms. Right. The form we specialize in is whole life insurance, but this isn't like whole life insurance, like just for the life insurance only. Like you said, like you're dying, it's for the cash purpose of it. So, you're using this as almost like a savings account that grows. It has there's an interest rate that grow that it grows by. You're able to borrow against the cash, put cash back in, and almost create like your own independent banking system simply because of the way the money grows inside the policy it's it's completely different from other places it's in my opinion it's the best place on earth to store cash is inside of a life insurance policy because it's not subject to market risk it's not subject to creditors it's not subject to um and then with interest rates back to interest rates so when interest rates go up in uh, in the economy life insurance dividends typically increase. They're correlated with with interest rates. So as interest rates go up, dividend rates from insurance companies also go up. And then when interest rates go down, yes, the dividend rates go down, but also the cost to borrow money from the life insurance company goes down. So on either spectrum, whether interest rates are low or high, it benefits you as the policy owner. So I definitely urge you, if you are a business owner or you're looking for a place to store cash predictably for the next 10 or 20 years, look at, definitely look at using whole life insurance. And our website talks about some of these strategies of using whole life insurance, but really focus on um, your your goals. And then also not, not just the title of something, like obviously saying whole life insurance is not a sexy term. It's not an appealing term because <laughs> it doesn't sound that appealing, um, but don't focus on the title of it. Focus on the functions of it, what it could actually do, the tax benefits, the guaranteed growth, the ability to borrow in any market, the ability to have your own banking system, I think that, is, that, that long-term will definitely help a lot of people financially.
0: I love it. I love it. I got one more question for you, my friend. Yeah. You're on a show called The Decision Hour. Yeah. And we we make decisions uh, every day. Name, name a time in your life where your feet were on the line and you had to make that decision. What was it and what was the atmosphere like for you?
1: Yeah, it was the decision of having to move on from a W-2 job to starting my own business. It was, I guess, um, very difficult to make, right? Because the job was very, I guess, set. It was very straightforward. It was almost, in, in a way, guaranteed income. And then continuing to be self-employed would be far more risky and a very. it's entirely uncertain. Um, so there was a lot of uncertainty. But what I did was to kind of, go through that decision was identify the pros and cons of staying as w2 or starting my own uh, starting my own business and i the way and not just also identifying the pros and cons but also really seeking like the truth behind things like for example a job you we're saying right now that it's guaranteed income but is it really guaranteed income it's if anything it's a it's a matter of concentration risk like if you know, if you look at, for example, banks, if a bank loaned money to only if they if a bank had, for example, a thousand dollars that was all their money they had, and they loaned that money to one person, that bank would have very high concentration risk because their customer is in one hundred percent of their portfolio. Rather, if they had multiple customers, like ten or twenty customers, and each one had. You know, ten or hundred dollars of investment worth. Then they're diversifying their risk. They're they're reducing their concentration risk. And the same with insurance companies. If insurance companies only they took their portfolio and it only insured one house or one life or one car, that would be massive concentration risk. So they would diversify that by insuring multiple people. And the same is true with our income. If you have one income, one source of income, and that's 100% of your income, that's major concentration risk for you. You need to diversify your income. And entrepreneurship is typically the best way to diversify your income because once you have one business that's established, then you can get into other businesses. You also have no limits. You can invest in any business you want. And back to our previous conversation about the difference between being an active investor and passive investor, the same applies to businesses. So you don't always have to keep reinvesting back into your business. You can find other businesses out there and investing in those businesses so you're mitigating your concentration risk.
0: I Oh, man. I, I, man, I hope you folks are taking notes right now. This, is, this guy's dropping a ton of knowledge uh, on all y'all. Thinkinglikeabank.com. Check it out. Brother, thank you so much for taking time with us today. Thanks, Adam. Absolutely. It was nice talking to you. Hey, uh, folks, that's all the time that we got. Make sure you open it up. Go check out the website, thinkinglikeabank.com. Get a hold of them. Schedule an appointment. Know where your money's going, and uh, set up a point with them, and and help let them let the professionals help you get to where you want to go. Make sure you check out our parent network, Heroes Media Group. Go to heroesmediagroup.com. Check out all the other podcasts and the cool content that we got coming up there. Until next time, you've been listening to the Decision Hour.